It's time for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Doug is a certified financial planner, providing you with a personal financial hotline to answer your questions about tax planning, investments, retirement planning, estate planning, and education planning. Doug and Linda are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing financial and investment services since 1983. Doug and Linda will be answering your questions on WPTF's phone lines anytime during the next hour. Call 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Call toll-free 1-800-662-7979. And for mobile phones, it's star 680. And now, Doug and Linda Lewis and Money Matters. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983. For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers. So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783, that's 860-WPTF. Or you can call us toll-free, long distance, at 1-800-662-7979. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will. And yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs, and people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles, and that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda, and yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement. 
and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds? Equipment leasing partnerships? REITs? CDs? Gold? Annuities? So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning, insurance, or investments, call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Out-of-towners, call us toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show. Well, Ralph, this is Doug Lewis, Sir. Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Uh, I have some property out of state. Uh, it consists of about eight acres, a house, and a trailer that my children are currently residing in. Uh, I'd like to know how I could pass that on most economically to my children. Well, how old are you, Ralph? I'm 55. 55 years old. You're married? Yes, I am. What's the value of the combined estate that you and your wife have? Maybe nine hundred thousand. All right, and the property in that's out of state. The property uh, in Pennsylvania is valued somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred. And what is the cost that you paid for that property, Ralph? That's called the cost basis. Uh, the the accumulated cost over the period of time we've owned it, with the improvements and everything that's on it, probably is somewhere around uh, one hundred ninety to uh, one hundred two hundred thousand, maybe. All right, let's take a look at this then. First of all, what type of estate planning have you and your wife already done? Uh, very little, really. I think what we're talking about, though, is how do we transfer it now, not not after our, we're deceased. Well, if you just want to transfer, you just switch the title over. That's no big deal. But uh, but there are ramifications you need to be aware of. Okay, that's what I'm after. And the question is, are you concerned about estate taxes or capital gains taxes? Well, 
uh, probably capital gains taxes and, and loading them into something they can't afford to uh, handle at this time. Well, if you just give them the property by transferring the, pro- the title over to them, then the cost basis of $190,000 now belongs to them. And if they turn around and sell it, and they sell it for $250,000, then they will have a $60,000 capital gain, and maybe uh, they'll pay about $25,000 in taxes. They should have that problem. On the other hand, if you inherit, if they inherit it, then there is a step-up in basis, and they can sell it with no capital gains tax. So, so that's, there isn't really anything that keeps me from just gifting that property to the kids. Well, the gifting is limited by the estate taxes. Okay. However, you could also go ahead and give them the entire amount and still have no gift taxes. But at the time of your death, then they would have used some of the estate tax credits. I see. So the first issue is whether you're concerned about the estate taxes or not. Now, there is one other way that it can be done to avoid both gift taxes and estate taxes. In the event they wanted to sell the property, then we would do it through a charitable trust during your lifetime, and there is no capital gains issue at that time. I see. Why do you want to give it to them now, then? Well, I guess it's, uh, I I really uh, don't want to be tied into the uh, state property anymore, and uh, uh, they really can't afford to go out and get a mortgage to buy the property, so it's, it seemed the, the best way to take care of them. I mean, why not just let them live in it and not have to use up any... And then, at least they, when they inherit it, there'll be the cost basis will be stepped all the way up to the value. I see. Then you're not using any, uh, any of the estate tax credit, and you're also, at the same time, not using... Uh, not call, you're helping them with the capital gains issue. That sounds reasonable. You know, if fortunately you live another 20 years or 30 years, then all of that appreciation gets stepped up at the time that they, they, they inherit it, and then they can turn around and sell it the next day and pay no taxes. I see. That sounds like the right way to be. Yeah. If you're not worried about mortgage or ownership, I would go ahead and let them live in it. I see. Ralph, well, that's what we've been doing. Yes, ma'am. One of the things that, that might help is... You know, the questions that you and your wife have about your situation, it would be helpful if you would jot them down. And then when you go to use a financial planner or an advisor that can help you sort all this out and get it all squared away so so that everything's square, so that, you know, if something should happen, that you and your wife have got everything in order yeah, that uh, for way the we future. Would have it written down so that the rest of the family would know about it too. Right, right. I mean, just, you know, the specific questions that you have, you and your wife, Write them down, and then when you go to use an advisor, you'll have some of those issues put down on paper. I appreciate your help. And if you, you know, if you'd like any more information, our number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. Yes, ma'am. And I'll be happy to send you some information. Thank you kindly. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling. Well, Doug, what's new in the world of investment planning? Well, you know, Lynn, I think the big question about a lot of people with regard to their mutual funds is what about the mutual fund personality? You know, not many people realize that every mutual fund has its own personality. In other words, it's characterized primarily by its investment objectives, and they're called the mutual fund type and the policies that it follows towards achieving those objectives. Now, it may be the stodgy personality of a government bond fund that holds primarily super safe treasury bonds for income, or it could be the flashy personality of an aggressive growth fund 
which is mainly to increase share price by buying high-rising, fast-moving companies. But sometimes a mutual fund's personality, Lynn, is not what the fund shareholder initially thought it was, and in some cases, the fund's personality has changed over time. Having a misleading personality doesn't necessarily mean that a mutual fund is going to perform badly, on the other hand. On the contrary, one top-performing mutual fund, which was characterized as a growth in income fund, appeared to achieve its success by emphasizing growth, not income. The income portion was very low for conservative investors who bought the fund primarily for steady income and didn't really want growth. So the question of the personality is very important. And uh, typically, a fund's personality is described in its prospectus. It may say that it seeks capital appreciation or current income with low volatility of principal. And in turn, the fund rating services and financial publications classify funds in specific categories, such as aggressive growth or international, based on the prospectus. Right, Doug? Right. The prospectus, in addition, can state what the minimum and the maximum percentages of a particular type of investment, like, you know, junk bonds or aggressive stocks, or two-thirds at least will be invested in government securities. The guidelines, however, may allow a lot of leeway. Two funds investing in the same ratio, for example, 60% stocks and 40% bonds, could be still called balanced funds. But while one fund focuses on conservative blue chips and high-quality bonds, the other fund could be betting on more speculative small companies and higher-risk junk bonds. In fact, one recent analysis of mutual fund portfolios showed that over half of the funds it analyzed were misclassified. So, Doug, how can you tell if a fund truly matches its name or its classification? What exactly are the clues that it may be different than you thought it was? Well, without sounding too uh, self-seeking, it certainly helps to go see a certified financial planner. But if you could do it on your own, read the prospectus carefully. Find out, does it give the fund manager a narrow or a wide latitude in what he or she can invest in? The wider the latitude, the greater the chance that the performance and the volatility can deviate from your expectations. So the first thing is, read the prospectus. Secondly, you want to pay particular attention to the annual and the semi-annual reports to see if what the fund actually buys matches its classification and its character, right? Yeah, the annual reports are very good because that way you can really get a, a, a picture of how close the annual report is to the prospectus. Now, if the fund's returns are unusually higher or lower than the average returns for similar funds in its category, then that could be a sign that the fund has changed category or belongs in another category. And I guess the last thing is to follow the fund carefully after a change in fund managers. If your fund has changed its manager or the manager has left, uh, then you got to watch that real, real carefully. And very often, a new manager comes in, and he just wants to go ahead and try it his way or her way, and uh, you may end up with a very different personality. Well, let's look at what are some of the the types of uh, fund personalities that are out there, the different types of funds, Doug. Okay, well, right away at the top of the risk scale and the top of the return potential, you have your aggressive growth funds. You also have your international funds. Then you have your growth funds, which are different from aggressive growth. Then you have your precious metals. And then you have your growth and income funds, which I believe should be the base of your portfolio. Then when you get into the bond category, you have your high-yield corporate bonds, which are called junk bonds, and they can be great or they can be lousy depending on uh, 
you know, which one you're in. Just the fact that it's a junk bond fund doesn't mean it's a bad one. But the category is called high-yield corporate bond category. And then you have your balanced funds. And then you have your equity income funds. And then you have your fixed income funds. And then there's a category called U.S. government bond funds. So those are the major fund categories or some of the major fund categories and emerging markets category, personality there. Watch out if your mutual fund may have changed. Okay, very good. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's take a call. Margaret, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I was asking a question. We um, are interested in finding out if uh, you can be the manager of your trust and then um, direct the proceeds of it um, to, to go to uh, your children uh, who uh, uh, might need uh, assistance. Tell me a little bit about your situation, Margaret. How old are you? Well, I'm. Uh, we're at a perfect age. <laughs> we're both retired. Okay. Yay! Are, are, <laughs> are you? You're in your sixties. Uh, well, beyond that. You're in your seventies. Yes. Okay. You're in your seventies, and that's important to understand the age because of the six sixty four trust. Uh, all right. The second thing I need to know is. Uh, what are your income sources right now, the total dollars that you have on regular income? About 191000 All right. And does that... Last year. Yes. Now, does that meet all of your living expense needs? Yes. Okay. So your expenses are less than 191000 Yes. Okay. Very good. Now, let's take a look at what might be suitable for the 664 Trust. First of all, what? how much do you have in regular, in non-retirement investments? That would be stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all CDs, etc. Uh, CDs, well, all everything that's not in a retirement account. Well, everything's retirement. Okay, so you have no investments that are not in retirement plans. Well, we do have stocks and bonds. Right. About how much is that? Uh, two and a half million. All right, about two and a half million, and that's that's in non-retirement. That's not in IRAs or 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 four hundred one k's. That's not in an IRA account, it's not right? Not in an IRA. It's okay. a 403B. It is in a 403B? Yes. Okay. All right. It's per important to understand nothing in a 403B can go into a charitable trust. Oh, you can't put it in a charitable trust. And, and that's and 664. That's right. The 664 okay. trust, you can only put things into it that are not part of a 403B, a 401K, an IRA, a pension, a profit sharing, and so forth. Now... Let me ask you, do you have any investments that are not in your 403B? Oh, yes. How much do you have there? Somewhere around a million and a half. All right. Now, that million and a half, if that is investment money that has a tax for capital gain on it, yes, that can go into a 664 trust, and it can go ahead and be sold inside the trust and avoid all capital gains taxes, pay no taxes, and then you are the manager of that trust. Yes, you are. It's called the trustee, and you pay yourself and your husband a lifetime income. Yes, you do, just as if it's a pension, and your question then is, if I'm paying myself and I pay no taxes on any of the sales of any of the things in this trust, can I direct some of it to my children? Yeah. And the answer to that question is yes, but no longer than 20 years 
after your life? We have uh, 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 children who have to uh, be, unfortunately, uh, have a conservator. Then you have a disability trust problem. Yes, indeed. That's also, oh, you have disabled that, children. Yes, we well, do. This, this, this can be tied to that need very well. There are ways we can do that, and the way you do that, you have a disability trust because your children probably are qualifying to get disability income. Correct. Oh, yeah. You yeah. want to make sure that no money ends up directly in their hands. Oh, that couldn't be. Uh, that's right. Someone that's right. It's got to be funneled into the disability trust. Mm -hmm. So you could tie together the charitable 664 trust and insurance proceeds, and you can move everything through your channels to end up after you both, you and your husband both pass away, into the disability trust. Yes, it can be worked out. If you'd like more information on how to do this, if you call my office, my office number is... Eight seven two right seven thousand. All right. That's USA seven thousand. USA seven thousand. Yes, that, ma'am. That's, that's in Raleigh. So the area code's nine one nine. Oh, Raleigh. Right. That, yes. Right. Yeah. Write down your questions, Margaret, and Not if you'll enough. call the office, you know we can take down some information, and we can also send you some information. All right. Especially because you you've got a special situation with the children. Yes, we do. And you'd want to make sure that everything's in order to oh, be. Okay. All right, now let me, ask, advantage to them. let me ask you a question. How yes, much do you charge per hour? Well, I don't like to announce hourly <laughs> rates on the air because it's not proper. But we, but, but, but if, when if, I call you, you will tell me. Uh, yes, yeah, of course. The problem people get into is they try to get free advice from a salesperson instead of looking for advisors. But uh -huh. the investment advisor is one who, by law, must put your interests first and tell you what according to his knowledge and wisdom, is able to work best for you. But you have a sophisticated situation or a complicated situation that needs sophisticated advice, and I think you deserve to see a registered investment advisor, whether it be us or someone else, it doesn't matter to me, but it can be done. You can achieve your objectives if you do it right, and the 664 Trust might play into the disability trust scenario. All right. Yes, well, we're definitely, uh, we have to make arrangements. Yes, ma'am, just give us a call, and we enjoyed your, your, your call this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate your help. Okay. And, uh, yes, you'll be hearing from us. All right, very good. Thank Take you. care, Margaret. And you too. Have a wonderful week. Thank you very much. Take bye -bye. care now. Bye-bye. Well, then, what's new in the world of investment planning? Asset allocation funds versus balanced funds. Can you maybe elaborate on that? The confusion shouldn't be whether a person has an asset allocation fund or a balanced fund. You know, a balanced mutual fund, Linda, is nothing more than a mutual fund that has some stocks and some bonds in it. Your classic model for a balanced fund is one in which there is 50% stocks and 50% bonds. And the manager of that fund will be buying stocks and selling stocks, buying bonds and selling bonds, and try to keep that ratio at 50-50. On the other hand, an asset allocation fund is a mutual fund in which the manager has more flexibility and shifts from more stocks to less stocks and tries to maintain a ratio that he keeps shifting around according to different econometric models that are very hard to understand and so forth. The choice shouldn't be one versus the other. The real issue is you should have asset allocation 
as the overriding principle to your particular investment portfolio. A person who does not have asset allocation is really in a dangerous position, in my opinion. Because they haven't diversified, right? Or they don't have any system of diversification. They may have diversified all wrongly, oh, but they, yeah. have, they have no consistency in their diversification. So there should be asset allocation, but it should not be in a particular mutual fund. It should be an allocation of how much in government bond funds, how much in corporate bond funds, how much in international bond funds, how much in growth and income stock funds, how much in small cap stock funds, and maybe there may be something there for a balanced fund or an asset allocation fund. Well, Doug, what about the issue of using no-load funds? Well, that's another fallacy, Linda. There's a real confusion out there, and I've given a lot of thought recently to where the confusion is coming from, and I finally came up with an answer. First of all, the answer to the question, is there a difference in performance of a no-load or a load fund? The answer is no. Charles Lipper himself said when asked this question, there is no consistency to any difference between load or no-load funds. Therefore, the question has to be the managers. There are many managers of loaded funds who have outperformed consistently any funds that have no loads to them. So the question shouldn't be load versus no load. It's a nonsense question. That's like saying, can I get more money selling my house with or without a real estate broker? Well, it depends on how good a salesman you are. You know, it doesn't matter. The question also is, what's the house worth? But the real issue that has been confusing the public is who's putting this out? And it's being put out, Linda, by the newsletter writers. These are the gurus today, the ones who are putting out all the newsletters from the most respected to all the garbagey stuff that I see out there on how to become an instantaneous millionaire. You know, what I've seen is that some of these newsletter writers, they'll have you know their picture on the front and some nice title, but then when you look inside it, you've got all these no-load people that are probably... What they're saying is, subscribe to us, pay us, and we will be your advisor. And therefore, you don't have to go ahead and pay a load to get into a particular mutual fund. But if you write to any of these newsletter writers and ask for their financial background, they'll respond to you with a letter saying, we don't have to file a form ADV. We don't have to disclose any financial background or investment background or experience of our own. So it's all marketing hype. The best example I know was there was a Money Magazine article and a database that was printed. And what they did, they actually took the reports that were reported from Morningstar and then massaged the numbers so that it made it look like certain funds had outperformed other funds. But what they're doing is they're just massaging numbers. They're rearranging them in a certain way. And they said all had to equal or better the S&P in a particular period. Well, there's a real problem there because it didn't tell you any of those mutual funds whose managers had already been gone. So if you're looking at a set of numbers of a mutual fund and the manager who produced that return retired a year and a half ago, <laughs> what good does it do looking at the track record of a fund who the man who made it is gone? And at least a half a dozen of those, the managers were gone. And that's the sort of thing that these newsletter writers are promoting that they will give you the inside source on how to become an instantaneous millionaire, and the key is to use no-load funds. Well, that's nonsense. I mean, you need to be working with a financial planner of your own who will actually come down to not a marketing story, but to looking at your individual needs and doing independent research for you.
someone who actually is following what's happening at the different investment companies. If you'd like some further information, I'll be happy to send you some. If you'll call the office at 872-7000, and then we can give you some more detailed assistance. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis, and if you've got a question, call us on the open lines at 860-9783. Out of towners, it is toll-free at 1-800-662-7979, and cellular callers, it is star 680. Well, Doug, let's take our next caller. How can I help you, Hank? This is Doug Lewis. I've got a qualified retirement plan set up uh, through a large bank in this state and regularly put aside money every year. It's a Keogh, and they didn't want to administer a Keogh, so they said, how about a QRP, which is a Keogh, under any other name? And I said, fine, and it's worked out that way in terms of what I can set aside. I found that, as in many other things that I have to deal with, uh, I've got time to do what I need to do, and then I've got to take care of the government with all kinds of paperwork, not the least of which... I have to worry about is the 5,500s that I need to file and all that. So I found some folks who wanted to administer this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, These folks wanted me to go to a 401K, and I said, you must be crazy. I can't set aside as much, shelter as much from taxation. Uh, You know, and and they administer 401Ks and and therefore wanted me to get in there one size shoe fits all. The reason I bring all this to your attention is that, A, I need somebody who will administer. You know, I can earn the money just fine, but I don't have time to earn the money and to look out for the market and wonder where to put my money and find out where it's going to go. So I'm stuck in a bunch of funds that are relatively safe with above-average performance in a bull market and uh, below-average losses in a bear market. But I'd really like – I know I could do better if I had the time. But uh, as an attorney, I do a lot of plaintiff's work, and if I win, I get paid. If I don't, I, I don't. And um, so my concern is basically finding someone out there who's ethical and competent who will administer my financial affairs for me and help me with the planning. And if they win, I don't mind paying a percentage of what we win, but I just refuse to pay a broker a commission with no guarantee that I'm going to do well and really his only incentive is to churn my stock. Well, let's, let's talk about two different provide, two different professionals that you're looking for so we don't confuse the issue. And are you using a paired plan or not? I'm not certain what a paired plan is. Where you have both a profit sharing and a pension. You see, Keo's profit sharing plan. It's a pure profit sharing plan. Yeah, I'm at no defined contribution, no defined benefit. It's if I have a great year, I contribute. As All right. As I the can. first thing I need to tell you is that if you are using a pure profit sharing plan, mm-hmm. we can simplify the the reporting requirements of the fifty five hundred you're talking about and move you straight to a SEP IRA. All right. A SEP IRA does not. You do not have to do, do any reporting requirements at all to the IRS. You can use a SEP IRA, and you don't have to go in and use uh, a Keo, and that will simplify the bookkeeping. Great. Now, the next question is, who's going to be the provider or the administrator? The administrator of the plan, by the way, of a SEP IRA, you can go to a uh, to an independent trust company, which is what I prefer to use. They're cheaper. You don't have to use the bank. You don't have to be uh, dealing with any, any particular stockbroker and so on. Use an independent trust company. They're usually going to chart, well, the ones that I like, nominal cost. All right. You avoid all of that. Now, so what I've just told you is get away from the bank as the administrator, as the trustee, and right. let the trustee be a, uh, an independent trust company. They are much better suited to do the job. Right. Now, the next type of professional you're talking about is who's going to do the investments. You can deal with a fee-based financial planner. 
I, you can deal with, uh, you can do it totally on your own. You can, but if you're looking for someone that will work on a pure fee basis, then you're looking for a fee based financial planner and they will generally charge, uh, either as you do as an attorney, either an hourly fee or a flat annual fee. Uh, in our practice, we do both. We charge either hourly fees or we charge flat annual fees. Uh, and the advisory work, of selecting the investments and what investments to go into and so forth and so on, I can be as untainted as you choose. Right. So, yes, there are people out there, there are people like myself that do that for a living. Uh, you don't have to be dealing with the relationship that you're complaining about, the brokerage relationship where there is someone uh, who every recommendation is based upon a commission being generated. I'd love to tell you how bad it's gotten. I regularly get calls from a national brokerage concern, cold. And they use a ruse to get through to me, telling my receptionist it's a personal call. And I point out to them that I view my relationship with somebody who's going to handle my funds as a fiduciary one. And would they, if they were in my shoes, allow someone who lied to get through to them to be their fiduciary? And that usually terminates the conversation rather quickly. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, that's one of the services that Linda and I provide for our clients. We tell them when you're on that cold call list and somebody is hitting you up for a prospect call, right. just tell them that we're your independent financial advisor. We tell them, give our name, and then we do all the screening for them because you should be out of that loop. Yeah, could I have your number? Yeah, that number, Hank, is 8727000 in the Raleigh area. Right. And uh, 919 And one thing that you should probably do is get a notebook and jot down some of the questions that you have right. regarding the retirement and any other issues that have to do with your situation. Okay. Whether, you know, in your, in your business practice or in your personal situation. Right. And I'll be happy to send you some information. I think I'm losing you on my Okay. Well, thanks for calling. Hey, thank you. All right. Have a safe right. journey home. Bye-bye now. Well, Doug, what's new in the world of estate planning? Well, in the revocable living trust, an estate planning tool has at least five key benefits which cannot be overlooked. First, there's probate. The court supervision of transferring assets from your estate to your heirs. All assets transferred to a trust before you die bypass probate and are not included in your probated estate. Second, elimination of time delays of probate. When the executor files your will, it becomes public record, and creditors are notified to make claims. The final income and estate tax returns are filed, and a minimum of nine months must go by before the assets are distributed to the heirs. It can often take years. When you establish a revocable living trust, you transfer all your property ownership to it, and the trust assets do not go through probate. They are taxable, but not probatable. Third, avoidance of contention. For example, you may plan to leave a large inheritance to a second spouse which would anger children from your first marriage. Rarely have embittered heirs been able to invalidate living trusts in court. Fourth, privacy. When your executor files your will at the courthouse, it becomes public record. Because the trust is not filed with any court, it remains private even at death. Fifth, the trust can provide for a successor trustee to manage your assets if you are physically or mentally incapacitated. It can let you avoid being placed under a court-appointed guardian if you can't manage your own affairs. You see, you generally name yourself as trustee when setting up the trust, and then name a successor trustee, and since it is a revocable trust, you can make any changes you wish during your lifetime. The revocable living trust is somewhat costly, but more and more people are finding that it provides choice and flexibility. 
Since it's a revocable trust, you're never locked in, and since you're the trustee, you haven't lost any responsibilities of power. If you've been wondering about revocable living trusts, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, act wisely, and if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Let's take another caller, Doug. Hi, Ed. How are you this uh, evening? A couple questions. Go ahead. Um, real quick before my phone pops off, and maybe you can answer over the air. All right. I have a portfolio of stocks. Right. They're all long-term gain stocks, which I don't think that makes much difference anymore. If I sell and take the losses, how long do, can, how long do I have to wait before I can reinvest in the same stocks? You or got, do I have to wait? Yeah, you got to. The wash rule. Uh, I think... Seems like it's 31 days is the wash rule. I'd have to look that one up for you. Okay, can I buy other stocks other than those? Yes, you can. Immediately. Yes, you can. Okay. You can do that. As a matter of fact, we do that very often in mutual funds. We go into a family and we move out when we're taking a loss and move into another fund in the same family. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, second question. Um, well, actually, it's maybe three. Matter um, of fact, let me give you my office number if we run out, 872 Okay. And call me if we run out. Uh, tomorrow, whatever, and I'll help you if we run out of time. Go ahead. Okay. Next question. I have a um, um, North Carolina mutual, um, North Carolina municipal bond. Right. I have approximately. Well, I ain't gonna get into that. I got quite a few. And well, I don't know your last name. Tell me what you're talking about. <laughs> a half a million. Okay. Okay. If um, if that's the only income I have during the year, other yep. than dividends from my stock portfolio, yep. Do I have to pay an alternative minimum tax? The AMT on uh, tax. My, my my income from the um, non-taxable income off those off those bonds would be approximately forty thousand dollars. Do I still have to pay a? a There's all tax free theoretically, but do I have to pay the alternative minimum tax? I I want to hedge on that one. You have to call me on that one. I uh, I, I, I know think. You off, off top of well, because I run them through my computer. I do financial plans for folks, and I see that happen. But I'm trying to picture how it comes out at the bottom. Uh-huh. I'll research that one for you. I really am. I want. To, you didn't used to, but I think they changed something on that. I think you might. In other words, you, you know, for tax-free income, you, you really can't do it. Uh, yeah, but I can show you ways that you can do it. You can get tax-free income other ways than that. Okay. Give me a call, and I'll see if, and I'll look that one up for you, and I'll see what I can recommend. All right. Thanks a lot for calling, Ed. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, Doug, you've been telling more and more people about the need for a financial roadmap, and what exactly do you mean by that? Well, then you know, a financial roadmap is really, it's a crucial item. The financial plan itself, a financial plan document, is or should be a financial roadmap. And no one would try and take a journey from here to Alaska or here to uh, Wisconsin without a roadmap. The same way, you should have a roadmap. And the financial plan should be a roadmap that has different style and uh, different planners and so forth. But no matter how it is uh, stylized, it should definitely have at least 13 sections that it covers. And the first section of a financial plan should be your personal data section. It should include all the personal information about you, your kids, your parents, all the personal family data, if you've been married before. But the personal data section should be the first section of your financial plan. Exactly. And each area should be addressed to the extent that it suits a person's personal situation. So uh, along with the personal data, the second element of a financial plan would be a person's goals and objectives. Right, Doug? 
Right. That's um, very crucial. People sometimes need to just sit down and think about what are our goals, you know, whether you're married or single or if you're a widow or whatever your situation is. You have a certain goals and objectives for your life. So you need to sort of think about those things and have some priority and some desired time frame. A lot of people just say, I, I don't know. They've never really put their goals down. Exactly. When do I want to be financially independent? When do I want to retire? What about educating my children? What about my cash flow? What about my, my credit cards and so forth? Uh, but the third section of a financial plan should be the, the issues and problems section. This section should be an identification of the areas that are problem areas, like college education costs or taxes. A financial plan should analyze the taxes, the cost to educate your children, major illnesses in the past, or any other factors that may develop into a problem. Sometimes the client knows them. Sometimes the planner identifies them. But they should be put into a separate section in the plan called issues and problems area. The fourth element of a person's financial plan should be assumptions that are used in the plan preparation. And that would include such issues as inflation, investment growth, mortality rates, and other material assumptions that would be included within the financial plan. Right, Doug? Right, Lynn. For a financial plan to really work as a roadmap, those first four sections, the personal data section, the goals and objectives section, the issues and problems section, and the assumptions section are the ones the plan is built on. Now, starting with the fifth section, we should get into the numbers, and the fifth section should be the net worth section or the financial statement or the balance sheet of the client. That should be an analysis which includes all of the client's assets, that's everything they own, all of their liabilities, that's everything they owe, and then a calculation of what they're worth, and it should have different backup schedules to these, and then presumably it should have some comments by the financial planner about how the financial statement looks. What does it look? Does it look good, bad compared to other people and so forth? So that's the fifth section of a financial plan, the balance sheet or net worth analysis section. The sixth element or the sixth section of a financial plan should include your cash flow management. And this would include any statements or analysis that describes or details the sources of your income. Where's all your income coming from and where's it all going? What are you spending all this money that's coming in for? This is vitally important within the plan, right, Doug? Well, the sixth section is the most important section to most people, the cash flow section, because this says, just as you said, it's everything coming in that you're making, it's everything going out that you're spending, and whether you have excess or shortfall. If you have more coming in than going out on your expenses, then how do I invest it? How do I use it to get the other goals met? If I have a shortfall, how do I budget myself to get back in line? The cash flow section should have a detailed analysis of the cash flow and then recommendations by the financial planner. And this is usually the section that really needs a lot of attention for people that are planning on retirement or young couples that have high income, whatever the problem may be. And some people just don't, they don't ever look at, they never know it's coming living. in and they know it's going out and they never track what's going out, but Nobody's all ever of a sudden, the living yeah, you need to put the brakes on and, and look at it, right Doug? Yeah, that's right, Lynn. Now, that's the sixth section. Got any idea what the seventh section would be? Taxes. You're right. The seventh <laughs> section should be taxes. There should be a section on income taxes, uh -huh. which should be an analysis of all the income taxes for a certain period of years that are projected uh, in my financial plans. I do four years ahead of time, a four-year projection, but it should be a projection of income taxes. It should show the nature of the income, 
whether it's fees, commissions, whether it's a portfolio income, passive income, and so on. Uh, and then it should show the marginal tax brackets. And then it should show uh, what ifs and then recommendations, what to do about the income taxes to make sure you're paying the least amount necessary and with the best tax benefits. We're talking about the financial roadmap that most people should address or should look at and the 13 elements of a financial plan document that a person should look for if they are working with a financial planner or thinking of doing so, right? Yeah. The eighth element of a financial plan should include your risk management or your insurance. People need to find out whether or not they're adequately insured. And this section would be an analysis of your financial exposure relative to mortality and morbidity, your liability and your property, including your business if you own one. And it should list and it should analyze your current policies that you have and problems that may include but may not be limited to the need for life insurance, disability, medical and health insurance, property and casualty, and liability and business as well. Long-term nursing care, exactly. all kinds of insurance coverages. Analysis, are you properly insured? Do you have too much or too little insurance? And do you have the right kind of insurance? The ninth section of a financial plan to really work as a roadmap has to be investments. That should be a listing of all the current investment portfolio, uh, which investments you should keep, which ones you should uh, liquidate, reposition, there should be a liquidity analysis of your investment portfolio, a diversification analysis, an investment risk exposure analysis. It should include your risk tolerance, your ability to understand different investments, and all kinds of things in the investment section. That's the ninth section of a good financial plan. The tenth section of a financial plan should include financial independence, retirement planning, and education, and other special needs. People that are working usually have a plan that one day they don't want to be working anymore. They want to be golfing or traveling or whatever. So this section of your plan would be an analysis of the capital that you would need at some future time to provide for your specific needs. And this analysis should include a projection of the resources that are expected to be available to meet these needs at that time. So if it's retirement planning, how much do you need to accumulate to be able to support you at that time of your life? If it's college funding, how much will you need to educate your baby 18 years from now when they start college, right? Very crucial, Et cetera. yes, to be able to be financially independent. The last section of the financial plan is the estate section. It should identify the assets in your estate, analyze how much taxes are going to be paid or due on estate uh, at the time that you die. What about probate cost? All the things in your estate and uh, to make sure it's going to happen the way you want it to happen should be in that section. And, you now, know, Doug, I, I wanted to say something here. People may not realize it, but this is this section, the estate planning section, is so important, especially if you're working with an attorney. Right, Doug? Because when you're working with a financial planner that's helping you analyze your estate, your financial planner generally will have the current value of the estate, whereas your attorney may not rarely, know. Rarely do attorneys have any of the numbers. You should never do a financial plan th uh, estate section with an attorney until you've met with a financial planner first. They should be a team working together. I will say there's two other sections in a financial plan to work as a good roadmap. One is the recommendations section. It should have clear recommendations for each of the sections. And then lastly, there should be an implementation schedule in of what to do when. What do I need to implement in each of these sections and, and an action list? 
If these 13 sections are there, then you have a real financial roadmap that will get you to the place you want to be. Write down some of the questions that you have, and certainly if there's anything we can do to assist you with this, we'd be happy to do so. And that number here in Raleigh is 872-7000-USA-7000. And I believe we have another caller. Doug, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Uh, my question concerned uh, a sole proprietorship versus uh, incorporating. Uh-huh. I own a business. I've got about a six-year-old business that uh, has been growing relatively steady. And aside from liability, what, what are the advantages of uh, incorporating? Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Doug. How old are you? 31. You're 31. You married or single? Married. Married. Any children? Two. Two children. And these children are living at home? Yes. All right. Uh, what's your income? Uh, tough, tough to say. I mean, we gross, and we'll probably gross uh, 1.2 this year business-wise. You're grossing $1.2 million. How much is your net? on Right now, you're a sole proprietorship? Yeah. All right. What is it on your Schedule C? All right, so you're coming home with 100000 that you're bringing over to the front page of your tax return. Right. All right, is your wife working or is she not working? Not working. All right, so you've got 100000 take-home pay. And what are your living expenses running? Uh, average, I'd say four a month. About 48000 All right, so if we're spending, we'll say 50000 a year before taxes. And then taxes are, are going to be covering... What about thirty thousand? Yeah. All right. So if taxes are taking out another thirty thousand, before I go to the corporate structure, let me take a look at what do you have working for you. What do you have in the way? Do you have any retirement plan at all? Uh, no. No retirement plan. All right. How about in personal investment assets? How much do you have in cash and liquid assets? Seventy-five to a hundred. Seventy-five. To, that's all in, in just cash and money market, not invested. Well, that's not including what's invested in the uh, company itself. Yeah. Why are you sitting with so much cash? Uh, excuse me? Why are you sitting with so much cash just in money market? That's not making anything for you. Because well, I'm an idiot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need a financial right. planner. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you have invested in investments like mutual funds, stocks, bonds, etc.? cetera? Uh, out of that, probably 35 Oh, all right. So I misunderstood you. So thirty-five thousand is in mutual funds. Uh, stocks is in stocks, and that seventy-five then isn't all in cash. No, no, no. It's the forty-five that's in cash. Right. Okay. Anything in bonds or bond funds? No. Okay. Anything in limited partnerships? No. Annuities? No. So this is the only investment you've got—the thirty-five thousand stocks. Correct. Okay. Uh, and no retirement plan at all in your company, and your sole proprietorship. Well, as far as the business itself, there are three major or four major distinctions. You can become a partnership. Now, you say a partnership with another individual? Excuse me? Your question is what? The difference between corporations and partnerships? Or well, corporations? well, a partnership and a sole, sole proprietorship are relatively the same thing. That's it's exactly right. Fine. So, And that's what I was going to ask. Do you do have a partner? Uh, well, yeah, I do. It's... Uh, it's Oh, there's another. That's a 10% ordeal, so it's, it's not. All right. Well, you can go ahead and form a corporation, because you're right. A partnership is going to basically give you 
uh, simply a pass-through, so it's not going to have any effect one way or the other. Right. You can go to a corporate st- uh, strategy, though, and you could become a C-corporation, which is a normal corporation, and that will give you certain benefits. Number one, it will let you set up a, uh, a pension plan. Although, by the way, how many employees do you have? Uh, right now, in- including the uh, other guy, we're looking at 14. 14 employees. All right. You could set up a pension plan uh, with a corporation that could be funded from corporate assets. You could go ahead and uh, and also do one thing in a corporate, and there's some benefits that you can add to the employees if you choose to. You can also set up types of retirement plans that exclude certain employees. The main feature, and they, and there used to be a lot of concern about what they call the uh, liability issue, but puncturing the corporate shield is pretty easy these days. Uh, a, li- a lawsuit against you, in most cases, if indeed there's liability, it's going to be able to, there'll be a way to come through at you. So I don't usually focus too much on, the, uh, what is the nature of your business, by the way? Uh, contracting. Like? Electrical contracting. Of course, and you've got insurance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The major advantage of the of the corporation is that for tax purposes, you can buy unlimited amounts of tax shelter investments in C corporations. Mm-hmm. That's the major feature. If your income is only a hundred thousand, however, I uh, you couldn't get any more benefit than what you could get personally. Right. The negative side of the corporate structure is that you have to keep two sets of books. Mm-hmm. You've got to file two separate tax returns, and so. Uh, I'm not sure it will work to your benefit that well. Uh, what's what's the cutoff there? Which cutoff? Uh, what's the cutoff? I mean, at what point do you uh, would you suggest incorporating? Well, when you're starting to make more money. Well, I mean, uh, in other words, if you were if you were bringing in three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand. Yeah, then I would say, well, golly, if you've got three hundred thousand dollars and you're looking at trying to reduce your taxes. Then you're limited by what you can do. But on the other hand, the corporation could really wipe out a big hunk of those taxes and own the investments itself. I understand. And if we can be of more assistance to you, you can call me at the office during the week. And the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Well, I appreciate the help. Well, you're sure welcome. Thank you, Doug. All right, bye-bye. Appreciate you calling. Well, that's all the money matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. 
Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.